Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritPolice.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and welcome to the show, Andy Nyman. Hello, Andy. Hello, Stuart. Very nice to talk to you. Yes. I always, I mean, it does always amuse me inside that I've just done all that hello bit and then we do it for a show. Um, but uh, no, novelty never wears off. Uh, it's the double hello. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Well, um, I'm speaking to you from London. You're in Atlanta. That's a brilliant thing in of itself. Um, yeah. But we're here to talk about ghost stories and the DVD release on the 27th of August. Yes. Wowzer, eh? So, I know. Very I was fortunate. I was fortunate enough to see it on the on the big screen. Yeah, and it was a wonderful experience. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed it. A uh, a real a sort of. Uh, I mean, I, I should say I haven't. I, I never saw the the stage version, which I know we'll, yeah. we'll hopefully get on to talk about in terms of taking from stage to screen. But um, I li- I went to it as, and I did. I I was following your Twitter advice at the time it was out, where it was like going as cold as possible. I knew bugger all. Oh, that's brilliant. And I was thoroughly rewarded, and I promise, without without any of your... I'll follow your lead on the podcast, but I promise I'll do no spoiler in from my end, because I think that's Super. the best way to enjoy your film, I think it's safe to say, isn't it? Yes, I think so, yeah, absolutely. So with that in mind, do you want to give a brief synopsis without spoilering as to what <laughs> goes... As to what go, I was basically obfuscating there for a second, going, well, I can't do it, so I'll let Andy do I, it. And then proceed to just give everything away. <laughs> Yeah, here we go. Here's the very simple. Um, it's about a paranormal um, investigator called Professor Philip Goodman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's uh, a debunker, really. He has a TV show called Psychic Cheats. And he stumbles across three unsolved hauntings, for want of a better word. And he's almost set a challenge uh, by his former mentor, who basically everyone thinks has vanished. And this man contacts Goodman out of the blue. Charles Cameron contacts uh, Goodman out of the blue and says, these three cases I could not solve. They have haunted me. If you dare. Go investigate, come back and tell me what you find. So that's then the plot is Goodman goes off, 
to investigate these three different cases. And uh, and that's it. And that's sort of the framing device then for, for what is essentially our homage to the portmanteau film. Indeed, indeed. I was, uh, I was getting uh, whiffs of Vaults of Horror and From Beyond the Grave and so on and yes. so forth. Yes, it was, absolutely. It was, it was lovely to say with that, because they're the type of ones I've never seen on the big screen. So to be, to be the minute I could see that was where we were, where it was going, I was like, oh yes, this is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be a comfortable ride. Well, oh, although actually, you, you're right to say dare, because because from an audience point of view, that's where the scare becomes, because you're you're with the debunker, aren't you? You're you're we're with Professor Goodman. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and the fun actually is if if people like yourself hadn't seen the play, if you see the play, there are twists in the play that aren't in the film, and vice versa. Lots of fans of the play went to the film, and there are things that are very different to the film. They're quite, they're sort of completely different, but exactly the same. They're sort mm. of sisters to each other, twins of evil, you could say, and. Um, <laughs> And they're tonally very different as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's with great pride, really, that we managed to kind of keep them unique to each other. No, no. So let's let's think about them. So you 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 wrote and directed this with uh, Jeremy Dyson co-directing and co-writing with you. Yes. But but you also starred in it. So do you get extra points for that when you when you sit down and discuss the success of the film? Oh no, of course. Well, because, you know, let's talk about that, because the yeah. truth of that is what happens is, well, you know, we, the journey from uh, when the play was on mm-hmm. was that um, we had two quite big American offers, uh, one big studio who made a sizable offer to do the film mm-hmm. and one very wonderful, high profile independent who wanted to make a film version of it. Um, and they both came with very different trimmings, really. The, the the big studio, it was sort of abundantly clear that um, we'd get an exec producer credit and we'd write the first pass. But basically, that would be like, here's your money, fuck off, really and truly. They, they take it yeah. off you. They do. They take it off you. Uh, and after much negotiations, we decided that that was not what we wanted to do. By then, we decided that we wanted to write and direct and me star in it, which is what had happened with the play, um, because we, lo- we love it very deeply and we didn't want someone else. If it was going to fail, we'd rather it failed on our shoulders than watching someone else mess it up. Or then you think, oh, Jesus, why did you do that? You know, we just wanted to do it our way. And then the small independent was very good and they were... Um, I mean, they're actually a sort of massive independent, but they were into us writing it and directing it and me starring. But, you know, it was an interesting conversations we had with them and negotiations where, again, you begin to realise their sensibility is very different to what ours is. As, mm. as me, Jeremy, and, you know, this was our version of everything we loved growing up. Amicus and Hammer House of Horror and the M.R. Jameses. Well, that sensibility is not an American sensibility. No, not at uh, all. Have their own version of that. But, you know, what they would want to do is make a, a, you know, understandably, because it is a business, a film that will play 
in multiplexes in the middle of nowhere, um, which was also what we wanted, but we wanted to do it on our terms. So we ended up not doing that. We decided that we wanted to go with a British company. Um, so we then wrote our first draft, which took us about 18 months. Can I ask you about writing with Jeremy Dyson? Because I was listening to an interview with Rhys Shearsmith about working with him on League of Gentlemen and, and that collaboration, because he's up in Yorkshire, isn't he? Jeremy, yes. Yeah. So how did that work? How, how did the writing process work for you two as a, as collaborators? Did you yeah. sit in the room together? Did you Skype? Did you send each other bits of information or? Yeah. Jeremy and I have been best friends since we were 15. Okay. That's a good start. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it was horror that really was one of the horror and dirty jokes was the thing that sort of brought us together and mm. still does. I was going to say, and keep me young, I suppose. Yeah. Nothing's changed. <laughs> so, um, and we'd all sort of said, wouldn't it be nice to work together? But life gets in the way. You know, I, I'm married with my family down here. He's married with his family up there. I've been insanely busy acting for 30 years. And Jeremy's been crazy busy writing. And and then when the play happened, it was just I'd sort of had this idea where I phoned Jeremy up and said, I think I've actually got an idea that we could that it feels right to do together and the stars sort of aligned and we found time to write it and and how we did the play was sort of how we ended up doing the film mm -hmm. which was we would always write together always and so we'd be in the room together or in the case of the sort of technology advancements in, in, in the sort of seven years since the play's been written um my son actually introduced me to a, a, a brilliant writing program called Writer Duet. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Writerduet.com. Hmm. Um, um, it's fabulous because it means that you're both seeing the same screen at the same time and you can have a little camera that comes with the, the thing and it writes like Final Draft and you can save it and download it. And So we would either be in the room doing it or doing it on Writer Duet. Um, and the, the online thing actually very quickly felt very natural. I was quite, I was a little bit nervous of it at first because it felt like, oh, it's not the same. Because we also used Skype a lot when we were in the edit where Jeremy would have days where he was up in Yorkshire mm. and I'm in the edit and he'd just have a camera there and he'd be on, you know, on the computer. And it's remarkable, actually, with a good Internet connection, you very quickly forget that you're even in the room. Uh, you're not in the room together because all the same things are applying, which are, you know, pockets of sitting in absolute silence. Mm. One of you going off for a wee while the other one shouting through. How about, um, you know, it's all the same stuff and it doesn't really matter if you're in the room or not. You know, our, <laughs> this conversation we're having now, Stuart, wouldn't be any different if we were sitting on a sofa next to each other with a, a thing between us. I mean, the only difference is you wouldn't be able to smell my cheap aftershave. That's the only difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd be able to sense I've gotten it on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like your trousers. <laughs> no, definitely um, put them on. Yeah. So, um, so we would write like that. And the writing would consist of... <clears throat> One of you typing, one you know, whilst the other one's sort of chatting or scribbling notes, and then you have a go at it. We would improvise quite a lot as well. So we would use, you know, because a lot of our scenes are two-handers. Mm. So you'd each play a role. 
and just improv and see how that often it would be, you know, I'd play Goodman, he'd play the other role or we'd switch. Hold on one second. Hello. Come in. See you later. Um, so we would often improvise and that was incredibly helpful as well. It's amazing what breakthroughs that would give you. And then. Can I ask you, having, having written the script, the, the, the stage play together then and obviously got used to this, got used to working. To, I guess you're saying that technology allowed you to be this more flexible with the with the screenplay development. But what what were. Was the challenge to do things that were unique to the stage play or was the medium of screen forcing you to try and come up with something different than what was on stage? Well, we had to because this gives nothing away if I say that the play mm -hmm. is presented as a lecture. OK. So and it's very specifically your Goodman is talking to you as an audience, not an imaginary audience at some stage. He is talking to you now the people who are in attendance this evening. So it feels experiential as opposed to performance. It feels absolutely live. Yeah. Well, you can't do that on the screen. No, that's And there were also moments of oddness and scares within the play that go hand in hand with that presentation, which meant you can't do that either. Mm. But that's a painful process because and I don't mean this arrogantly, but you're taking a product that you know works very well because the thing has run in the West, it ran in the West End for 26 months. Jesus, I didn't realise that. Yeah, two runs of 13 months. Wow. Plus, in, you know, this very large international life. Hmm. So you know, as a machine, the thing is working. Safe to and what, say. <laughs> what you've got to do is dismantle it. And throw out some of the bits that are your favourite bits of that machine. Well, that's very uncomfortable to do. And um, but of course, as is often the way with the creative process, what you then discover after much silence, bleeding from the eyes and digging <laughs> is are the things that you love most about the new version because you've really had to find new stuff and discover new stuff. And, um, and that was one of the great joys of, of adapting it for screen from the play, was it was very hard work, but incredibly rewarding. Would I be right, having not seen the play, would I be right in thinking that ostensibly a lot of what you did to bring it from stage to screen would have been about bringing those tales that the lecture was about in, into live action for? No. Oh, really? Uh you see those th exactly those three stories yeah on stage right okay oh yeah 100% um what the main difference was i think well there are a couple of main differences yeah uh one is just sort of the opening out of the interviews mhm mm and then opening out the life, Goodman's life around that. They were really the big differences. There are other differences as well that I don't want to talk about in the podcast because people won't have seen it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's Goodman's journey that is the biggest change. That's that's the biggest shift in the play uh, from play to film. Okay. It's how, how Professor Goodman um, goes from A to Z. Yeah. 
So, so, um, in ter- so as you were as you're bringing this together, then so that, that's the that's the big shift in the story. So, when you're when you're when you're producing this, you've obviously got three very different stories in in different settings and stuff. But essentially, they're they're three contained ghost stories, which as, as the yeah. title of the film goes. So, yes, they're almost while there's inter- interconnecting tissue, which I won't say beyond that, all the way through. Yeah, um, stand alike, absolutely. They are standalones, aren't they? In, 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 which is what kind of is is the, the 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 trick of all. I think for all good portmanteau and anthologies is that you you are led to believe they're just stories. <laughs> Each one has its appeal, has its has its has its reversal of expectation, has its scare, and then there's the um, the idea that actually these aren't. These aren't separate at all. These mean something. Well, exactly. And that's, I mean, actually, the one, there's really only one other one that's done that properly. And that is Dead of Night. That's the very first one. And, you know, and that was the one for us. Because, you know, we watched a lot of them. and You know, we were fans of them anyway. Mm. But that's the key difference between Dead of Night and Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt, Creepshow even, you know. I mean, so many of them have a sort of perfunctory uh, and there's something, there's always something creepy in my antique shop, do come back, you know. Mm. There's a sort of silly thing to hang the stories on, whereas Dead of Night, which if you haven't seen, you must see, um, is extraordinary. It's brutally nihilistic, Dead of Night, in the end, Unbelievable. isn't it? <laughs> and in fact, the ending of Dead of Night, when it came out, uh, it was um, 1945, I think, the ending was banned in America. Get out of town. Too, no, it said it was too downbeat for a wartime audience, um, which is amazing. You know, and it really, you know, the first time I saw it, it just knocked me sideways, actually. Um, no, it's, it's, I was on so, th- so that was sort of our... You know, and the reason it's a remarkable film is the person who is linking the stories, his story is actually the most important story. And that's that's what we really emulated was that, you know, it's good. Goodman isn't just a cipher who te- who is there to hang the things off. It is it's his story that. That is the most important one. Can I, can I ask you from a writing point of view? How do you, I mean? Because I think that's a, that's the massive challenge with it. Is how do you tell Professor Goodman's story without explicitly really telling it at any point? Well, the joy. I mean, one of the joys of the play and the film. Yeah. Of the things we heard a lot and continue to hear mm-hmm. is that it's one. You know, revisiting the story, seeing the film for a second time, seeing mm. the play. We had people come to the play. I am not exaggerating when I say four or five times, and lots of people. Okay. You know, because each time, the next time you see it when it comes out on DVD, there will be things that you think, how the fuck did I miss that? How did I miss that? How did I not notice that? How did I not see that? Because the cl- there are many clues and Easter eggs right the way through the film. No, I mean, you, you hide them right in plain sight, and, and I think it's a genius. Well, that's it, it, there's a magical theory, which is a brilliant thing of a dual reality that I think probably exists in writing as well. Mm. But it's where you really, uh, when I say magical thing, I mean within the conjuring arts, within the world of the magician, mm-hmm. um, where it's, you know, Essentially, you're misdirecting your audience to believe X is going on 
Whereas it's actually what you're talking about boldly is Y, but they're interpreting what you're talking about as X. Mm. Um, so there are two realities. There is a dual reality. And the most exciting version of that is then when you're when it's revealed to your audience, you know, where you then have a sort of revelation moment. Do you know, I mean, it's going to start a crass comparison, but I think it, this Kill List has a similar thing. If you go back and rewatch it, the shock, yes. of the, the shock of the third act is in shocking because all the clues are there. Yeah. But you're not looking for the clues. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's exactly it. I mean, one of my all-time favourites is um, Deep Red. I absolutely okay. adore it. And... Um, are you there? Have you gone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, I'm listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the reasons I love it so much is that, um, and also Bird of Crystal Plumage does the same, those early Argentos, is that particularly Deep Red and, and Bird of Crystal Plumage, they have, they don't cheat their twists hmm. for whatever. You know, again, I'm being very cautious talking about them. No, that's fair, um, fair, fair approach. And what that does is it puts you in the shoes of the protagonist, especially Deep Red, where you innately know because you have literally seen what they have seen. And yet, you know, something doesn't feel right and you can't put your finger on it. And what's amazingly powerful about that is that's exactly what the lead of your film is doing, is he's on exactly the same trajectory as you, which is what am I missing? Mm. What is wrong with that thing that I saw? Because I know there's something wrong. And that, you know, that's the holy grail to, you know, to try and achieve that as brilliantly as they do. I'm sure there are many other films that, that do that in the same, you know, Angel Heart to some degree. Mm. But it's not, it's slightly different because you're, you're unraveling a mystery there. Mm. Whereas in, in those two Argentos, you have literally seen what they've seen. Um, yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's, and it's a clever trick of storytelling, isn't it? Because it's very easy to go, meanwhile, here's some things you need to know, um, as opposed yes. to, I've seeded everything you've seen, but you've not watched closely enough, or yes. you have to know this much because that's all the character knows. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a, and, I, and as, as a kind of measure, and again, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't spoil it, but when, when you do, when you do give us, what we what we need what we need to know. <laughs> yes, I I was watching me and my wife went to see it together, and it's that classic, you know, when two people go, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> that's lovely. It was. I think we were a textbook reaction. To be honest with you, we did the classic. Oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah, there's a really wonderful. I mean, you know, I presume I, I, the scene you're talking about, sort mm. of. Um. It's a really exciting scene to watch with an audience because you feel this shift. And that was sort of the same with the players as well. The play, you know, it's a very slippery thing where you think, oh, they think they know what they're seeing. And then as each thing slides away from them, you're like, so what the fuck is going on? Hopefully in an exciting way, not in a confusing, oh, I'm bored of this way. Um, but that's very, that's very lovely to hear. To hear well, I mean, what, what, I mean, one of my, one of my all time favorite films is, is Jacob's Ladder, which does that yes. kind of disassociative viewing experience. Yeah, it's brilliant. Because because of the way, again, it's the way the film focuses on the protagonist and yeah. 
that's all you understand is what the protagonist understands until yeah. the protagonist learns the answer. And then you're like, it's bleeding obvious, but you couldn't have guessed at the same time, which is a... Yeah. That's... yeah. So congratulations on that on that piece. So so from from a from a making point of view, if you're if you if you if you're direct co-directing with Jeremy, but you're yeah. also starring in, yeah. how, how do you balance those two disciplines to make a movie? Well, it was very it was very I, I say easy glibly. I don't mean it like <laughs> that. I mean it really was it, it was easy because you know we worked incredibly hard in pre-production. We had an amazing team with us, a brilliant uh, DP in Ula Birkeland, and so we would work on the shots on the day, you know, we'd, we'd storyboarded everything, but mm-hmm. you don't all, you don't do your storyboard. It just gives you a starting point, you know. And um, so we did, we'd work on that. We'd get there on the day. We'd set our shots. What was your conversation like with your DLP? What were you, what were you, I mean, obviously you, you know your genre. So what were you saying from a, from a photography point of view? Were you saying you wanted it to look and feel like or was that a, is that a conversation that was kind of three times different and then a fourth time again no we had very big conversations Go about on. It. uh very big conversations because again the thing you've got to do in the film mm-hmm. is you know you've got basically three completely different stories mm-hmm. and how do you make sure that they still feel like they're part of the same film of course so we did a lot of we did a lot of work with the designer and the DP on the style of each of those stories, the color palette that ran through the film. Um, so there was a huge amount of work put into that, a huge amount of work and thinking. Uh, and then on the day, you know, you're working towards those things and you're, we knew we were telling the story classically. That was very important to yeah. us. Uh, we wanted to tell it like a classic piece of cinema we didn't you know we don't like i get very bored of sort of shaky camera stuff and um so we knew we had a very strong idea about what our I, by the way just to interrupt you i think i do feel like there's a bit of a return to the to holding a frame and a nice flowing slow moving camera that either reveals or lets us lets us into a shot you know lets us know what's going on as opposed to giving us a headache I think well, I get the feeling that Roger Deakins' current rise profile has had some bigger influence on on lower budget movies. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he's he's amazing, you know. And actually, the cones were a huge template for us, and always have been. They're just amazing, and you know, we looked at the Cone Brothers a lot, and Spielberg mm. a lot, and just the sort of. And, and then you go back to sort of Val Luton, and you know, we had three very different ideas for what each of those stories would be. So I had a, so I had a strong idea on that. And then in terms of directing and being in it, yeah. you know, if, if I wasn't in it, then you'd be setting the shots and doing that. And we would have conversations if there were conversations to be had. And then if I was in it, I had a stand in. So he would be there, you know, so he could be in the shot while we were creating the shots and that. And then once that was decided, I go in and do my stuff and then performance wise if if there were notes to be given jeremy you know would give notes we just work that way and what was what for you was the um from from script to screen 
what was your what was the achievement that you're most proud of in terms of what I mean obviously the film the film as a whole is is the achievement but in terms of what you you were kind of like what how are we going to get this how are we going to get this in the can what, what what was what was an example maybe of something you're um, you, you're particularly proud of in in the production of the film. Well, there's a few nuts and bolts achievements that, you know, that are pragmatic things. Yeah. So aside from, you know, there's a massive achievement of Jeremy and I have been best friends since we were 15 and have written and directed the play and the film and are still best friends. That's a huge achievement because (laughs) it's a minefield, you know. Mm. And so I think my relationship with Jeremy and how we worked very hard at always treating each other with kindness and respect and and listening to each other. And that's not always easy. That's not to be underestimated when you're both strong people with strong egos and a strong artistic vision that you want to get across. You know, so it's not easy to... Did did, did you by any chance sort of, with that in mind, and obviously that being something you obviously didn't want to ruin, did you, while things were good... Did you lay down ground rules as to what do we do if we get to a, a junction where we can't get over the road? Absolutely. And okay. we had, you know, we had awkward conversations, forced ourselves to have them yeah. before before filming started. What do you want out of the film? You know, what what does your ego require? OK, that's interesting. Things that. Well, because it's naive to pretend that that's not a real thing. And not a legitimate thing. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. You know, having an ego isn't just about being egotistical. It's, you know, it's one of the reasons that helps you sustain your self-belief and self-esteem and vision are all tied into how you fucking survive this business. Mm. Because you've got to survive an awful lot of rejection. So how you think of yourself is a really important precious thing and protecting that's really important and precious as well as your ambition being part and parcel of what also helps you survive and also helps you have the vision and the drive to to lead an army of people in a film you know so we had to have those conversations um and also just a pragmatic one Here's one to start with, Stuart. Who calls cut? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never thought of that. You know, and that's potentially a very thorny issue. Were you dogmatic about that or did you? Did you? Did you? Well, we look, we, we had the conversations, but my thing has always been, you know, on, you, you have to have the conversations and. Jeremy's very good at forcing those conversations. I don't, there's no, that's, I'm not saying that with any agenda. I mean, he's very good at making sure that happens. Mm-hmm. But I have also always stated, I think it's great to have them, but I also refuse to accept there's a problem, it, you know, until the problem arises. I don't mean that in a naive way. I mean that in the way that, if you've got kids, I don't know if you have, but there's that thing where people always say, oh, oh wait till she's walking. Oh, okay. Wait till he gets into the terrible tubes. Oh, well, wait till he goes to school. Then you'll see. And all that shit's just like, don't, you know, it's like people inventing these problems that are going to happen as opposed to just if it becomes a problem, we'll deal with it. So I, I never 
in the way that it never was with the play. It was never a problem. And on paper, you look at it, and on the play, there were three directors. There was me and Jeremy, and there was also Sean Holmes, who was uh, technically sort of became a director for us, who was wonderful. Um, but in both of these things, you've got two the two writers are also the two directors, and one of those people's the star. Well, on paper, you go, oof, that's going to be tricky. Mm. But it isn't, and it wasn't. Um, and I do think one of the reasons was because we always kept our sense of humour and we always talked a lot. There were moments, we definitely had a couple of moments that were like, okay, this is going to, we need to navigate this. But never never massive. I've only ever, I mean, I've, I've seen myself on screen on things and I've obviously heard my voice a lot doing a podcast. But when, when, when you're in the scene and Jeremy Cole's cut, then you look at the, you look at the, the footage... Yeah, assuming you shot it on digital, that is. Um, yeah. So you've almost got that immediacy. How did you sort of keep your critical faculties out of what might uh, have been given given us? Jeremy's like, that's the that's the shot, and you're going, oh, but I could have done. And you, maybe in your mind, maybe not vocally or whatever. But how do you remain sort of happy with what you've done, as opposed to that everyone's their own worst critic? Uh, I'm not my own worst critic. I've been an actor for 32 years i've been in over 20 films mm. i actually quite like watching my work um not because i think i'm amazing but because i think you take enough knocks you need to learn to take pride and excitement in in what you what you're doing that's what i feel so i don't have an i don't cringe when i watch myself um and i am i'm not my own worst critic but i am I, I, I am quite objective about my work, so I can look at it and go, I'm going to just do one more and just bring it down a bit or do a bit more. Or what about that? Mm. Or And also I could look at it and go, do you think we should be on a slightly wider lens or should we go move move there at the end? Or, you know, and you discuss that in the same way you would any other actor. And very often as well with Jeremy, I would only take a look at the very end if it was like, you know, before we were like moving on, I'd come and have a look and just say, let's just do one more or not do one more or not. If I knew it felt great, I wouldn't, I wouldn't move on. Is there any but, way of explaining that? Because I, I always, I always, I've heard that expression before. Like, you know, you've, you've, you've done your, you've done the scene and people go, that felt good. And, and obviously you, you talk decades of experience obviously probably helps, helps in that. But what is, what is that about when you do a performance in front of the camera where, where you, you kind of know you nailed it? That's a really good question. And what's, what's hard? Well, well, there are two things to talk about. The first thing is as an actor. Hmm. And when you, feel, when you feel you've nailed it is, you know, the greatest thing as an actor is, is in that moment when you feel you're flying and you feel you're not in control of it, but you're, everything's all working right mm -hmm. um and you just you're there in the moment that's a very special feeling uh and it's not ridiculously infrequent but when it comes you're like oh god that was a good one that was a good take now what's hard because that happens on stage as well mm -hmm. what's hard of course is that on screen you can do that feel amazing look at the thing and it's like oh fucking hell my face is half in shadow <laughs> why didn't we address the lighting before we took it or 
it goes soft that it goes out of focus at the end or there's a million things or you know there's a fly behind you on the window that's crawling down and is totally distracted you know there's a million different variants that can mean we've got to do it again and what's weird is as an actor if you're not aware of that stuff and they go okay we're going to do it again you think oh god i wasn't very good wasn't very good also of course as an actor in, in filming mm. what you forget is it's jigsaw pieces so you can have a moment you can do that take that feels sensational and they do it again and when they come to the end they'll they might use most of another take and the last two words of the take that felt sensational you know because they're cutting around everything so nothing's wasted that's a really that's a valuable uh, learning lesson to pass on, really. I think for anyone listening who's who's sort of, who is acting on screen, because you're yeah you're right. I never thought of it that way before. That it can't if it's captured, it's not wasted, is it? Not it's, uh, it's never, never. And that's why as an actor, you know, you always want to be going right through till they call cut. Never stop. You know, this thing I'm doing at the moment. Um, there's a scene yesterday that we're working on and it's a sort of it's all part of an action sequence, which yeah. means it really is very bitty. But, you know, there's a bit where you sort of I'll be sh shout, you know, catch that dog, for instance, I'm making it up. Somebody catch that dog. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the scene or the end of that bit. And, you know, they get, you know, we're going as far as that. Well, that doesn't mean you go catch that dog and now I keep still. I see actors do that all the time until they call cut. Whereas I think it's really valuable to catch that dog. You know, you're not necessarily throwing in more lines, but you're looking around and keeping that moment alive as to what's going to happen next. Because all of those little bits, very often when you're in the edit, you're like, fuck, I wish they just if they could look to the left there. Or, oh, hold on. At the end of that take, doesn't he do a bit? We could use that. You just never know. Every time it's valuable. As well as you as the star of the film, you, your co-stars include Martin Freeman and uh, Paul Whitehouse. Um, and Alex Lawther. Yeah, they're, they're the... Yeah. They're your, they're your subjects of the um, of the three of the three tales. Yes. Um, now, obviously, it goes it, 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 as, as someone who starred in the Hobbit series and stuff. I guess you know Martin's the big movie star in the, of those of that trio. So, so can can we talk about? I mean, how, how do you get Martin Freeman onto a film like Ghostbusters? That's not to say that Ghostbusters is some sort of little thing, but it, you know, no. it, well, it is a little thing. Mm. It is a little thing. It's a little British film. Mm. So you know. So here's the, re you know, here's your, the, the reality check of doing those things is here's a little British film that, you know, has is a is a sort of global brand now, ghost stories. But nevertheless, the film itself is a, a smallish budget British film. And you've got irrespective of our huge bodies of work, you've got two first time feature directors, two first time feature writers and a star, your leading actor, um, is not massive. Me is not massively famous, and certainly has not a big international profile. So, 
you know, if you're stepping yourself away from your own ego. So you look at that and think, well, if I was putting a whole load of money into that, I would want somebody that could sell it around the world. I would want something that means people in Germany, France, Italy, Spain, America will want to go see it. Well, my face is not that face. Mm. Martin Freeman's face is potentially that face, you know, because he's global and he's amazing and a film star. Mm. So, you know, the, so. So we knew for that role, we had to have a, a person of that stature. And then within that role, um, it's quite a strange and specific role that was always tricky to cast on stage. And because what you need is an actor who, hold on one sec, come in. So what were we saying? Yes, cast, global. Casting so, a global actor. You need, we needed an actor who is an A-list star. But not only are they an A-list star, they need to be funny. And they need to be able to do dark as well. And they also need to be um, have a sort of you need an A-list star who doesn't bring baggage with them. And by that, I mean, you know, someone who you don't. That, that doesn't bring a persona and where Martin's amazing is that. He, he sort of doesn't. He has this incredible invisibility about him. Um, so, yeah, he's a, he's a celebrity who can do character. It's it's a rare gift, isn't it? Yeah, he's he's amazing. So um, we sent the script to his agent, uh, and, and you know, and he's he loved the script. It's as simple as that, really. And um, and then it's just about trying to make the dates work. Had he done out of interest? Had he done Cargo before he did he did your film? Uh, I think he just done Cargo. And came to us, yeah. On a Which role, I have on, on a roll with his with his genre with his with his branching out into genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so he's he's brilliant. And and then the, the other with, with Paul Whitehouse, you've you've interestingly you've obviously got the comedy in, in terms of how he can perform, but but in shows he's in serious dramas he's been in, he's he's his range does go to the go to the dark side for one of a better expression. He's an incredible actor. Um, and Jeremy and I, um, Jeremy and I, the minute we thought of him for that role, we just couldn't think of anyone else. We just knew because not only is he of clearly a genius comedically, but he's also um, just he's, his pathos is unbelievable. He, he's a brilliant, brilliant actor. That and whole, then, can I just say that whole scene in the working man's club is an absolute yeah. joy. Oh, bless you! Thank you. Because he because he, he has your character on the wrong foot, doesn't he? From the get go, yeah, it's just, it's just lovely. Well, that opening bit that was completely improvised, not really? not on the day. I mean, with me and Jeremy, yeah, the sort of, you know because that came out of us talking about it just feels so fucking safe it just all feels so dull and that sort of punch thing mm. came out of us improvising and me just sort of you know and us just sort of doing that and it felt like wow that really felt like a way in strangely and uh it really he was just brilliant and then alex lawther who's just extraordinary He's an open vessel emotionally. He's just the most brilliant, brilliant actor. I'd never seen him before the end of the fucking world. 
And for that entire show, I couldn't take my eyes off him. And then to see him in your film, it was just like, this, this guy's going on for great things, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he, he, can, he manages to, I don't know, I don't know, I mean, from a, from a viewer's point of view, because I'm no actor, so I wouldn't have a clue, but from a viewing point of view, he manages to be within himself, which is obviously an internal thing, but you can see it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally. He's amazing. And so from a, so from, so from a directing point of view, what, and, and obviously with your experience as an actor, do you, do you... Are, are you are you heavy hat? Are you are you like uh, what do you call it autocratic in 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 because you talked about in storyboards and stuff? So you kind of obviously have an idea what you're going to shoot. Um, but are you looking for what they want to do, or or are you looking for what they will do? Something between the two. There are certain moments where you know this has got to be like this. Okay. I want this moment to be exactly like that. Um. And then there are other moments where they just bring incredible stuff. And then you want to go, oh, my God, do do that. Go more of that. Do this. Or do we've got that. Do one where it's a bit less than that or a bit more than that. Or have you thought about this? But it just varies each moment because, you know, the, re the reason those actors are there and certainly the actors of the caliber we had is yeah, that, yeah. you know, you do that work in the casting and then wait and see. But, you know, everyone's different. All directors are different. Indeed. Well, look, one last one last question then before you go. Um, yeah. Is, I believe, but I, I was, I was, because it was only the first time I watched it, I, but with that, because we've avoided spoilers, I think we've done very well there. But as a little, as a little treat, can you tell us some of the direct, a direct homage you're trying to do from a horror film that's, oh. that's, that's in ghost stories that we can at least give that away. Go on. That, you know, that, so you've got um, the first story, uh, Paul Whitehouse's story is our sort of homage to the haunting, really. You know, it's a classic haunted house. Mm -hmm. Second one is our version of, you know, including, when I say version of, including shots from <laughs> <laughs> Dead and uh, the nightmare at thirty thousand feet section of um, Twilight Zone, the movie, and um, and then the final one is our sort of version of the game. You know that sort of very cold David Fincher fluorescent feel. You know where he's in the house, mm. um, but there are many many layers. Well, look, congratulations on, on the film. Obviously, it's had its cinema release, and now for those that want to see it lots of times or those that haven't yet seen it, it's going to get its home entertainment release on... And I should say we've got fantastic extras on there. Go on, what, what, give us give us one, uh, one or two highlights. Beautiful making of... The, on the Blu-ray, this is. There's, mm -hmm. On, on the, uh, the DVD, there are, there's the commentary, I think, and one other little thing. And then on the Blu-ray, there's the commentary... There's commentary making of which is lovely um a very very funny thing called the rorschach test where they get all the actors to do a rorschach test and um really? to themselves yeah it's really really beautifully done it's hilarious <laughs> uh, there's a fantastic booklet that comes with it that we've sort of poured over there's um 
Graham Humphreys has done a, a poster card for it. I mean, it, Lionsgate have been amazing. They've really gone to town on it. Well, look, thank you very much for giving us your time. And uh, I look forward to uh, being able to watch it again and find those things uh, that, I, that I didn't see first time. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to talk about ghost stories. And thank you for your support. It means a lot. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.